The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, James Heal reads his politics column arguing that the Tories should fear the Greens. Lisa Hazeldine outlines some of the changes to Russia's school curriculum in light of the war on Ukraine. And Neil Clark reads his piece about the joys of non-league football. Up first, James Heal. So far, Keir Starmer has been unmoved by complaints from left-wingers that his policies differ little from those of Boris Johnson's at the last election. After all, if left-wing voters don't like his low-key approach, where else would they go? The problem in British politics, as David Cameron found out, is that disgruntled voters do find somewhere else to go. In Cameron's case, it was Nigel Farage. In Starmer's case, it may be to the Greens. Once dismissed as idealistic hippies, the Greens now serve in seven governments across Europe, including Germany, Belgium and Scotland. Even under the UK's majoritarian system, they're doing well with 800 council seats, more than Farage ever managed in his prime. As Starmer edges away from the green agenda, urging Khan to stop the Euler's expansion, he's taking a calculated risk that getting rid of the green crap, as Tory strategist Linton Crosby was said to have urged, will shore up more working-class votes in the north than it will risk urban votes in the south. But it's not without risks. The Greens came third in the 2021 London mayoral race and have overtaken Labour in representation in Bristol. Environment aside, the party may become a protest vote depository for young voters who despair at Starmer's caution. But the local elections in May confirmed that the Greens are increasingly a threat to the Tories too. Three quarters of their gains came at the expense of the Conservatives, including notable advances in Lewes and East Hertfordshire. Mid Suffolk returned a Green local council majority for the first time anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Green candidates won in Tory wards in Reigate, Spelthorne, and West Oxfordshire in 2022 following success in Stroud and Tunbridge the year before that. All are represented at Westminster by Tory MPs. Like the Lib Dems, the Green Party can be different things to different voters. Angry and radical in the city, they pose as communitarian and conservationist in the country, focusing on local economies and small businesses for middle-class rural voters. Nimbyish opposition to house-building has been crucial to success here. Polling by opinion suggests that half of voters who want to prevent excessive building see the Greens as their allies. Hence green progress in both affluent and deprived areas in the local elections. Critics jive that when the Greens do end up running things, they actually have to take a stand, and that stand tends to be on the wackier end of the spectrum. In Scotland, where they back independence, their support for gender self-ID split the independence movement. Their flagship bottled deposit return scheme is widely lampooned as a failure. SNP MSPs are demanding Hums Yousaf review their coalition deal, while Robin Harper, the Scottish Greens' former leader, quit the party this month, declaring it had lost the plot. Prior to May, the Greens had run only one council in England and Wales, Brighton. Their years in control there were characterised by bin strikes, poor recycling rates and plans to quadruple parking fees. The Greens' much-vaunted refusal to use a party whipping system caused major difficulties, with the council leader on one occasion forced to condemn a strike, while his deputy was outside on the picket line with the workers. This relaxed approach to party discipline can cause problems. Elections for the Green Party's executive this month have already seen one candidate accuse the party of being institutionally racist. Allegations of transphobia are never far away. 
Sean Berry had to quit as the party's co-leader in 2021 after she was unable to veto the appointment of a frontbench spokesman who argued that sex was biological and could not be changed. The Scottish Greens were even more appalled and cut ties with their sister party the following year. There is a danger too that the Greens' radicalism will alienate their newfound supporters across swathes of Middle England. Their current policies include a pledge to spend nearly $100 billion a year on climate change, almost four times the $28 billion detailed in Labour's now-abandoned Green New Deal. The monarchy would be abolished. On migration, the Greens would work towards the abolition of the concept of legal nationality and a world in which the concept of a British national is irrelevant and outdated. At the last election, the Green Party advocated the sale of cocaine in pharmacies and the transformation of the Ministry of Defence into a Ministry for Security and Peace. Spending on tanks and troops would be reapportioned for peace promotion and ecological emergencies, with soldiers and sailors charged with defending environments around the world from the effects of climate chaos. The Welsh Greens, meanwhile, want more powers up to and including independence in order to rid us of the toxic British class system. At a local level, Green councillors have pushed for meat and dairy to be banned at official events in places like Oxfordshire and Hythe. For the young radical, the Greens are now the closest thing to Corbynism on the political menu. For the Greenbelt Guardian of the Shires, they're a way of voicing despair at the Tories without endorsing Starmer. The Green Party's going for both camps. One of its two co-leaders, Carla Denyer, is standing in Bristol Central next year, a new seat drawn from Labour constituencies steeped in a left-wing tradition. Adrian Ramsey will meanwhile fight Waveney Valley, in deep blue territory, straddling the Norfolk-Suffolk divide. It remains to be seen if the Greens can successfully fight both constituencies, or come apart under their two-identity strategy. Alternatively, will the core voters of both Tory and Labour be so exasperated that they're past caring? General elections that are seen by voters as a Hobson's choice with little to inspire tend to be the ones where a third party does well. But it is the Greens who are well-placed to emerge as a major beneficiary of this trend. That was James Heal. Next, Lisa Hazeldon. Russia's education system is about to undergo a radical transformation. Next month, when the new academic year begins, classes will be required to teach teenagers how to assemble, handle and clean Kalashnikov rifles, how to use hand grenades and how to administer first aid in combat. This military training for sixth formers, 16 and over, will be taught as part of their Fundamentals of Life Safety classes. Such classes have existed in various forms since the 1980s. In the past, children have been taught quite practical skills, including how to stay safe in terror attacks, deal with radiation poisoning following the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, and more recently, the basics of online safety. The new briefing packs being distributed to teachers of year 10 and 11, equivalent to years 12 and 13 in Britain, reveal how overtly militarised the new curriculum is. Students will be required to in inverted commas, practice Kalashnikov automatic fire techniques, learn the basic duties of soldiers in combat, and learn how to carry the wounded out of combat. Last month, it was announced that sick formers would also be taught how to assemble and operate unmanned drones as part of these same classes. This edition came after Vladimir Putin called for drone training to be included in the curriculum in April as early career guidance that will ultimately benefit the country. Although the independent Russian media outlet Important Stories has published evidence showing that schools across the country have started buying up drones, Sergei Chernyshov, a former teacher and historian designated a foreign agent by the Kremlin for opposing the war in Ukraine, doesn't think many institutions will actually be able to follow through with this requirement. We should not expect that in the lessons of life safety, just because this programme has been adopted, children will be taught how to use drones, he tells me. There might only be 2 or 3% of schools who can afford drones. The Kremlin's plan for patriotic education of Russian schoolchildren, however, doesn't stop at practical skills training. 
Over the past few months, the Ministry of Education has been busy rewriting and standardising the school curriculum. For primary schools, this applies to just Russian classes. In the secondary school curriculum, history, geography and social sciences have also been modified. Schools in all regions will now teach an identical curriculum for these subjects and they will only be permitted to use state-written textbooks. Officially, the reason given for this centralised curriculum revamp, dubbed the Federal Basic Standardised Programme of Education, is to ensure that children receive an equal standard of education regardless of where across Russia's nine time zones they live. But a closer look at the education bill passed by the Duma suggests a more ideological motive behind these reforms. The new curriculum will create an awareness and manifestation of all Russian citizenship, patriotism, respect for the Russian language as the state language of the Russian Federation. The aim of teaching history will be to, in inverted commas, rebuff the falsifiers of Russian history, while the new geography curriculum will encourage a sense of patriotism in students. Chernyshov believes the aim of such lessons is to legitimise and normalise the Kremlin's actions in Ukraine. Education is an important factor in the current legitimisation of this war, he says. That is, when a school teacher tells you that what is happening is normal, they hold authority. The Russian leadership has barely bothered to deny the ideological link between the war and the educational reforms. When Sergei Kravtsov, the Minister of Education, announced the curriculum revamp in June, he declared that the information war unleashed on Russia by the collective West made it clear that the education system needed to focus on in inverted commas, objectively telling the truth to children. As such, he also announced that starting from this year, Russia's special military operation will be included in the history curriculum for sixth formers. Schools will also have to continue to teach a weekly class called Conversations About Important Things, which was introduced last year for every year group. These supposedly age-appropriate classes are, in the words of the Ministry of Education, designed to instil patriotism in children. Last year's classes included showing seven- and eight-year-olds photographs of emaciated child prisoners in Second World War concentration camps as part of a module commemorating the genocide of the Soviet people by Nazis and their enablers. Meanwhile, 14- and 15-year-olds were given a module titled Russia, the leader of the global nuclear industry. Nevertheless, according to Vasily Razumov, who lost his teaching job after being accused of discrediting the Russian army, not all teachers have been implementing the lesson plans. I have a friend who does not teach these lessons according to the training manual, he says. He just asked the children at the beginning of the year what was really important to them. They created mind maps, questions of friendship, self-organisation, time management, for example. He does not cover the political agenda at all. This is his way of sabotaging the lessons. The fear of being informed upon by pro-Kremlin... The fear of being informed upon by pro-Kremlin colleagues, students or parents means that many teachers do submit to teaching the lessons as required. Schools, Razumov says, are a place where the main driving mechanism is fear. Additionally, many teachers, says Chernyshov, actively support the new classes and are happily complicit in promoting the Kremlin's propaganda. The worst thing about these reforms is that it all comes from below, Chernyshov says. That is, we haven't seen any mass layoffs in schools, teachers, university management. We don't see any forms of protest. The education system has really turned out to be the devil's agent. This is the scariest thing. Political affiliations are increasingly playing a big part in who schools hire for jobs. If you are loyal to the authorities, if you accept the leader, support him in every possible way, then they will hire you, says Natalia Podolyak, a teacher from Siberia who also lost her job for discrediting the army. It appears that next month's government reforms won't even be the last. The Ministry of Education has already announced that by September next year, the life safety classes will be renamed the basis of security and the defence of the motherland, 
and will feature modules taught by veterans of the Ukraine war. How effective will these classes be at brainwashing? Podoliak doesn't think many teenagers who've been exposed to the West with its comfortable way of life will buy the narrative the Kremlin is trying to peddle. You won't be able to deceive them, she says. As the invasion of Ukraine stutters on with huge casualties, the latest estimates by the UK Ministry of Defence put the number 220,000 Russian soldiers injured or killed, it is not difficult to see why Putin wants Russia's students to pass from the classroom to the barracks. Last month, he backtracked on amendments to raise the age of conscription to 21. Instead, from January, men aged between 18 and 30 will be required to carry out at least a year of military service. Similarly, in April, the Duma amended the law to allow volunteers as young as 18 to sign contracts with the military. Before this, a university or vocational degree was required, which meant that volunteer soldiers younger than 20 were rare. Now, with his own survival increasingly on the line, Putin is creating a new generation of cannon fodder. That was Lisa Hazeldine. And finally, Neil Clark. Oxford City versus Rochdale at Court Place Farm doesn't have quite the same ring as Chelsea versus Liverpool at Stamford Bridge. But last Saturday's match was important all the same. The Hoops, Oxford's oldest football club, founded in 1882 when Gladstone was Prime Minister and Old Etonians won the FA Cup, were playing their first ever home game in the fifth tier of English football. Rochdale, whose 102-year membership of the Football League ended in May, were playing their first away game in the Valarama National League. 781 of us, including a spirited contingent from Lancashire, turned up to see the clash of the two sides, and the Dale claim a 1-0 victory with a 71st-minute goal. It was a far cry from the heavyweight battle at the bridge at the weekend, but it was wonderful. Non-league football has a buzz all of its own, which for me, for the most part, beats the big-time Premier League games. While it's too much of a stretch to say this is football as it used to be, non-league matches still have the old people's game feel to them. Something the high-cost premiership encounters between teams of millionaires lost years ago. At Oxford City, where it's £18 at the turnstiles with £13 concessions and £6 for students, you can move easily around the ground. You can get close to the players and the action. In fact, you can stand right behind the goal if you want to. Conversations between fellow supporters start up spontaneously. On Saturday, I bumped into an old friend who told me he'd been to more than 130 grounds and was looking forward to a first-time trip to the Shea, home of Halifax Town, next week. I spent much of the second half chatting to a lifelong Hoops fan who had moved to Swansea but was there to watch his nephew, who was one of City's subs. At this level, you actually feel part of the match, which never happens if you're in an executive box at the Emirates or even just sitting down at the Etihad. Players shout, Man on! and Time! and of course a few choice expletives. I first went to Oxford City Games in the late 1970s with my father. Then they played close to the city centre at the wonderfully atmospheric White House ground, their home since 1900. The crowd were always an eclectic mix of town and gown. You could get in for 50p if you were a student. In 1971 they set a record with Old Church which will never be broken. Their FA Cup tie took six matches and 11 hours to settle. Back then, there were no penalty shootouts to decide things and you simply kept on playing replays until one side prevailed. At the start of the 1980s, City made news again when England's World Cup winning captain Bobby Moore was appointed manager. He was offered a 14000 salary, a 5000 signing on fee and a Daimler. He didn't bring success on the pitch. In fact, City were relegated. But everyone remembers what a nice man he was. 
Given the club's history, it was especially traumatic when the landlord's Brazenose College had the brass neck to boot City from the White House in 1988 to make way for housing. The club was homeless and had to rebuild almost from scratch, starting at park football level. After 30 years of slowly climbing the steps of the non-league pyramid, the Hoops, so-called because they play in the QPR colours, celebrated promotion to the National League in May. From near extinction to playing in just one division away from the EFL has to be one of football's most remarkable comebacks. Rochdale, who were in League One only two years ago, came from the opposite direction. On Saturday, the difference just about showed. Packed with former EFL big beasts such as Chesterfield, the FA Cup semi-finalists in 1997, Hartlepool, York, Southend and even one side Oldham Athletic, who were founder members of the Premier League in 1992, the National League has arguably never been stronger. And Oxford City, attracting 700 or so paying spectators as opposed to Oldham's 7,000, will probably need another miracle to stay put. Non-league used to be an amateur and then semi-professional, but today all but four of the 24 teams in Step 1, as it's called, that's City, Dorking Wanderers, Maidenhead and Wheelstone, a full-time professional. Foreign money too has been attracted. Last season's champions, Wrexham, were famously bought in 2020 by the Hollywood stars Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney and have not looked back since. Given the rocketing cost of season tickets higher up the league ladder and the quality fare on offer down below, it's no surprise that increasing numbers of fans are switching to the non-league. Attendances in the National League were 18% up last season with more than 3 million going to matches. There's even a dedicated national newspaper, the non-league paper, that has been published each Sunday since 1999. Back in the 1970s, dropping out of the Football League was something of a death sentence. There was no automatic relegation and promotion, and the fate of the teams who finished near the bottom was decided by the other teams in a controversial voting process called re-election. But now, with the champions of the National League going up automatically, and the playoff places going down to 7th, a large number of teams and their supporters can realistically dream of making it into the EFL. Perhaps the Dale will return at the first time of asking. After the match on Saturday, one of their fans was standing by his team's supporters coach. A passing Oxford fan congratulated him on Rochdale's victory and wished him all the best. I hope you have a good season too, was the friendly reply. That's another thing about non-league. It attracts genuine football people who just love the sport, whatever it brings. That's everything for this week, but if you enjoy those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. Music